Our scripture reading this morning is uh, Psalm 42 and 43. And you can uh, find that you have the, in the Pew Bibles, or we also have it up on the screen. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go through the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. At your breakers and your waves have gone over me. All day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go into mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceiver and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is God's word. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Psalm 42-43. Let's ask the Lord to meet us as we look at his word. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Lord, that is our prayer this morning as we look into your word, that your light and your truth would come forth, that we would see them, and that we would follow them to meet with you. Lord, what we need more than anything is to meet with you. We love you. We pray that you would be with us by your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear, and that your spirit would apply your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. 
driving through life with the parking brake on. It's a vivid picture, isn't it? A howling tempest in the brain. Malignant sadness. In depression, it's as though you lack shock absorbers, shock absorbers for the potholes, so that these make you bottom out easily. Depression may feel like the insides are all knotted up, or it may feel like nothing at all. It may cause hair trigger response to the most minor incidents or complete ambivalence to major events. It can lead to binge eating or a complete lack of appetite. Depression becomes all-consuming. It becomes self-subsisting, offering tears for food. Depression is not just negative thinking. It's not just being down. It's being cast to the very end of your tether and, quite frankly, being dropped. Such is the testimony of those who have walked through the stubborn darkness that we call depression. Ed Welch, a counselor and a professor, writes that depression is a form of suffering that can't be reduced to one universal cause. It could be situational, so a response to circumstances in life, you know, the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or you know, a nagging sense of failure or inadequacy or shame or guilt. So it can be triggered by situations, and often is in some way, but then it can also be clinical even at the same time when your brain is not doing what it's supposed to do. It's not filtering information correctly. Whether you know, Doctors debate the causes of those kinds of things, but some sort of chemical imbalance. It can range in severity from kind of bothersome and annoying to utterly debilitating. Welch continues that depression is painful and if you've never experienced it, hard to understand. Like most forms of suffering, it feels private and isolating. And again, it's not a a common subject that gets discussed in the church. Uh, We tend to avoid what we don't understand and depression is notoriously complex. And it's not a happy subject to talk about. By definition. But worse than just kind of avoiding it because we don't get it, there's often a stigma associated with it as well. We think, or perhaps we've even been told, that Christians are supposed to be happy and healthy and well-adjusted, and they're not supposed to deal with these kinds of things. Isn't that what Jesus rescues us from, right? And so if we face depression or any variety of mental illness then something must be wrong with us and we've just got to try harder to get over it. Uh, Our faith isn't strong enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm not reading my Bible enough. And we don't dare speak honestly about that for fear of what others might think. And so I just kind of have to put my head down and gut through it, even as I'm hollowed out in the process. But the sad and potentially dangerous reality is that if we avoid the subject of depression, we're avoiding something that affects by generous or by, 
I don't know what kind of estimates, but I've seen them in multiple places, by estimates that around 25% of people are affected by depression in a given year. And even if you're not facing it, someone you love probably is, whether it's a a parent or a, a child or a spouse. Depression is real. Whether it's clinical or or situational, it's part of life in a fallen world. We need to be honest about the difficulties and the darkness of depression. But we also need to remember that depression is not beyond hope. Not if the gospel of Jesus has anything to say about it. Jared Wilson writes, What the Christian can be sure of, and what the depressed Christian can reasonably hope, is that while the darkness may be bigger than us, Christ is bigger than the darkness. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The gospel and depression. Again, in our our current series, we're looking at what practical difference the gospel of Jesus makes for all of life. And at this point in the series, what difference that gospel makes in me, in my own heart, my personal life. Now, a few clarifications as we venture into this subject. Uh, You need to know that I'm not addressing this topic as a doctor or a therapist or psychologist. I am none of those things. I'm addressing this as a pastor. And I'm not speaking on it as an expert, but as someone who's still learning. I have to confess that I've not always handled this subject very well in my own interactions. Uh, I've not always handled it with understanding and compassion, specifically in my marriage. Uh, My wife, Carissa, experienced postpartum depression with all four of our children. Uh, With Joshua, we didn't know what was going on. We kind of figured it out when Mariah came along, and so she was able to get treatment for that. Uh, at those times and get some medication, but we've had some of the worst fights in our marriage during those seasons. And I have to confess, that's mostly my fault. Because I, I simply could not understand what was wrong, how she could be so afraid of nothing, how she could, you know, why she was so worried. And, and because I couldn't understand it or control it, I got mad. That's how I responded. So I've had to learn a lot on this subject. I'm still learning. But I'm convinced that for the health of our souls, for the health of our congregation, we need to gain a gospel perspective on this subject, on all subjects, but on this subject too. And that's what we're going to do, Lord willing, by looking at Psalms 42 and 43. Now the book of Psalms is one of the best places to look in Scripture when you're looking at something like depression because it's a book that gives one of the most honest windows into walking with God in a fallen world. It it gives poetic expression to the full range of human experience and emotion. Uh, From the mountaintops of praise to the valleys of what's called lament in the Psalms. A lament is a kind of song that's a a prayerful complaint 
It's, it's looking at what I know to be true about God and looking at what I'm experiencing or seeing in the world and saying, Lord, this doesn't make sense. Something's wrong here. What do you think you're doing? When are you going to do something about it? So it's a prayer of complaint. Mark Vitato writes that the book of Psalms contains more songs of lament than any other kind of psalm. Think about that. Feelings of grief, loneliness, perplexity, anger, frustration, abandonment, despair, and more come to expression in the lyrics of these songs. You listen to Christian radio and there's one category of song and that's happy, basically. You read the book of Psalms, there's a lot more to work with there. And, And if you think about it, God has written lyrics for us for times when we're downcast and depressed. That's what the laments are. They give voice to that ache and longing and frustration in our hearts. Potato explains that through the laments, the Holy Spirit gives us great encouragement and great freedom to bring to expression all that we're thinking and feeling. Whether those thoughts and feelings are about ourselves, others, or even God himself. Stuffing our thoughts and emotions does not help at all. And expressing how we feel and what we think is part of the path to renewal. And Psalms 42 and 43 are one of those laments. And we're looking at these two chapters together because most likely they were originally a single psalm. There's debate on that, but not only do they address the, the same subject, but they share a lot of repeated lines, especially the refrain that you heard Lawrence read three times, verses 5 and 11 and 43 verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And there you can hear the psalmist's problem, right in that refrain. His soul is downcast and in turmoil. He writes honestly from a place of deep sadness and pain. And yet, he writes with hope. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And it's these two characteristics of honesty and hope that shape this psalm and that give us a gospel perspective on the matter of depression. Because the gospel's honest about all that's wrong in this world, though from our own personal sin and rebellion against God to the suffering and the sadness and the sorrow, everything that doesn't work in this world the way that it's supposed to. Because the gospel's honest about that, it frees us to be honest about something like depression. But because the gospel also points us to one ultimate solution for all that's wrong and broken in this world, how God is making all things new through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus, it at the same time gives us hope that Christ is bigger than our depression. So honesty and hope, those are the two categories. And we'll look first at the psalmist's honest expression of turmoil and 
sadness. Now, if you look at chapter 42, just before verse 1, you have what's called the superscript. It's that small print. Uh, And our Bibles often have two kinds of small print. There's the the title that the editor places in the Bible. In in my Bible, it says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? That's just the English publisher that put that. The next one there that says to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. That's what we call the superscript. And that's part of the Hebrew manuscript. That's part of the psalm. It's an introduction to it. And it tells us that this psalm was written by the sons of Korah. Now, Korah was one of the Levitical musicians placed in charge of temple worship by David and Solomon. And so the author, whoever he is, was a son of Korah. He followed in that line and that function, basically what we would call a worship leader. That's who's writing this psalm. And you can kind of see that in how he describes his experiences. He's lamenting over what's happening in his life. In verse 4, he remembers how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So he's a worship leader. But what happens when the worship leader, whose job is to usher the people of God into the joyful presence of God, feels utterly abandoned by God? And that's what's happening in this psalm. That's what he describes in the opening verses. In verse 1, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So, in contrast to the joy that he experienced leading the worship of God's people into the temple, the psalmist is starved for God's presence. The first two verses are pretty familiar to many of us. Uh, Unfortunately, what they're saying isn't as familiar. One author writes, we, we put these on a coffee mug to be sold in a Christian bookstore, or obscuring the bitter lament with cliched spirituality. We sing these lines in a popular praise chorus, pleasantly and contentedly. But this is a cry of a person dying of thirst. He's gasping for God like a parched man in the desert gasps through cracked lips for water. That's the picture. His tears have been his food day and night. He's so distraught, he has no appetite, just sadness to feed on. And sometimes in depression, that sadness can hit for no reason. Nothing in particular sad has occurred, but deep sadness strikes, bringing uncontrollable weeping at the slightest event or no event at all. Many people don't know that Charles Spurgeon, a great British preacher, uh, fought depression through much of his ministry, reflecting on his bouts that he would go through 
He said, I could weep by the hour like a child and yet not know what I wept for. And he felt great shame over that. When he saw you know, the trials that others were going through that were much worse than his and yet how they rejoiced in the Lord through them. He's like, what's wrong with me? And so it is in this passage. Not only are the tears the psalmist's food, they're also his accuser. As they say to him continually all the day, where is your God? He's not here. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be sad. If God were really present, he'd make this better. There's only one explanation. He's abandoned you. And it's probably your fault. That's what the psalmist feels. And it's perhaps not so remarkable that he feels that. Many of us can imagine that or, or have even experienced that. What's remarkable in a lot of ways is that he tells God about it. And that's something so many of us are afraid to do. We're so afraid to speak honestly before God. I mean, can a worship leader really say, where is your God? Are they allowed to be, are Christians allowed to be that honest? We must be that honest. We must be honest with God. But as it is in life, so in this psalm, the depression hits him in waves. So he, he rallies for the refrain in verse 5, which you know, acknowledges his distress, but points in the direction of hope. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Okay, so looking up there, that's great. Then the very next line in verse 6, we read his honest lament again. My soul is cast down within me. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I mean, think about that mixed metaphor there. So you think of the dark chaos of of the deep ocean floor. Deep calling to deep. And then the pounding weight of standing under an, a waterfall. And then the force of being tossed to and fro by the ocean waves. And you put all that together, that's what this weight feels like in his life. The pounding intensity of his sadness. Verse 9. I say to God, my rock. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me continually, where is your God? His soul taunts him. His enemies taunt him. We don't know who they are. He doesn't tell us. But someone out there is feeding him the same lies as his tears. And God is nowhere. Even as the third wave hits him in 43 verse 2, he says, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? 
We need to be honest when we're faced with that kind of sorrow and sadness, that stubborn darkness that just won't let go. And we need to give freedom to our friends and our loved ones to be honest about it as well. That's the lesson that's been hard learning for me. The stigma needs to go away. I think we can all just say that right now. The stigma needs to go away. Compassion and patience and prayer need to replace it. And we need to be willing to ask for help. That's part of being honest. One of the the lies that we can buy into is that no one will get this. No one knows what I'm going through, and so I've just got to figure it out on my own. Whether it's out of fear or shame or pride, if you're battling this alone, you need to put all of that away and bring it into the light. That might be talking to a friend or a parent or a pastor. It might be talking to a doctor or professional Christian counselor. It might even be willing to take medicine or something. That's necessary. I mean, we're obviously an over-medicated society, and so people are, are afraid to go down that road. And again, we've been told so often that if you just trust Jesus more, this will all go away. But as Ed Stetzer writes... If we're not afraid to put a cast on a broken bone, then why are we ashamed of a balanced plan to treat mental illness that might include medication to stabilize possible chemical imbalances? When you tell yourself the truth over and over and over again and yourself doesn't believe it, maybe something's not working right. Talk to a doctor about those kinds of things. So we need to make space to be honest about it in our personal relationships, but we also need to make space to be honest about it in the church. In April of 2013, uh, the evangelical world, who by and large has avoided talking about this topic, was kind of shocked out of apathy by a series of notable pastors whose children committed suicide. Uh, The first big one uh, that hit the news was Rick Warren's son. Rick Warren, the author and, and megachurch pastor, uh, his son Matthew uh, committed suicide in April 2013, having suffered from depression and mental illness. In the wake of that shock, you know, a lot of people did a lot of soul searching, saying, what can we do different so that this isn't something people feel like they need to hide? One uh, author who has personally dealt with a lifetime of depression wrote when she was asked, you know, how churches can best reach out to those in the congregation who might be struggling with depression or anxiety. uh, Rebecca Lyons uh, is her name. She wrote that churches can talk about it and talk about it often. I'm a firm believer that secrets lose power when they exit the dark. Confession is a healing balm toward connectivity. And we're loved to the measure that we are known. So the more we name our struggles, the more others have permission to do the same. I can't think of a more perfect medium to provide this healing community than the church. Isn't that what the community of Christ ought to be able 
to be good at. Being honest about what's wrong with the world and applying the truth of the gospel to it. Shouldn't we be known for that? It's a lot of what Joe and Pat Lombardi have been talking about in their recent class. So we need to make space for an honest conversation. Because it's only when we bring this stuff into the light that we can really apply the hope of the gospel to it. And that's where the psalm leads us. Not just honesty, but hope. Hope. We need to face depression with honesty, but we need to face it with hope. And we see that in the refrain again in 42.5.11 and 43.5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So we see that note of hope hit throughout the climax of the psalm, but we even see it breaking into that second wave, if you will, in verses 6 through 10. So interwoven with the honest expressions of pain, we read things like verse 6. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Nazar. Now, twice in the passage, the psalmist, amid his pain, turns to memory. The first time he remembers something, it's a contrast to how miserable he is now. He remembers the joy of worship, and that's a contrast to how miserable he is. But here, in verse 6, he remembers something as a means of coping. He remembers something that gives him hope. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember. Catherine Green McCrate, who's a a theologian uh, who is battled bipolar disorder uh, much of her adult life. She writes that when one is depressed, memory fills in the gaps that feeling has left vacant. One can't feel God's grace, but one can remember it. The heaviness of the soul is counteracted by the remembrance of concrete places and acts that God has done. Think about that. So the psalmist is remembering times when God has been close to him and the joy. Even though he can't feel it now, he knows God can do it because he's seen it done and he's calling it to mind. His historic faithfulness, the the land of Jordan and Mount Hermon and Mount Mazar, the place where God faithfully led his people into the promised land. God was with us then. I remember how God did that. In the same way today, we can remember the very concrete act of God's salvation that he accomplished in the cross. Whenever you're tempted to doubt God's presence and love, look to the cross. Remember how much he loves you and how much he proved it on the cross. Think of Romans 5.8. God demonstrates, he proves his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Because of the cross, we know that God's loyal love is for us, even if we can't feel it. Verse 42, 8. 
By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. The verse that was set to music in the choral anthem earlier. There's a strange but comforting irony in verses 8 and 9. So you have this acknowledgement of God's loyal love, his steadfast love in verse 8. And it's his confidence in God's steadfast love that frees him to ask in verse 9, why have you forgotten me? We think those two things, if, if, if you believe in God's steadfast love, you're not allowed to ask God the question of why you've forgotten me. Quite to the contrary. It's because he knows God's loyal love is true that he has the freedom to ask that question. Where are you, God? Chapter 43, verse 1. He continues calling for God's help. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. Oh God, my God. And there in verse 3, the psalmist puts his finger on it. When we're trapped in the darkness, what we need more than anything else is God's light and truth. Lies fester in the darkness. Lies that tell you you are all alone. Nobody will ever understand you. What you've done is unforgivable, and God is finished with you. You're never going to be good enough for him. He's now out to get you because of what you've done. He's just waiting for one more mess up, and then the hammer's going to fall. And you should be afraid of that. You should panic, always. Because you're never going to be free. As much as you hate this anxiety and sadness, as much as you claim to love God, there is no key for the prison cell you're living in. There's no way out except for death. Those are the lies that fester in the darkness. But the truth of the gospel tells us something so beautifully different than that. It tells us that even when you feel alone, you're not alone. That God will never leave you nor forsake you. That his presence with you isn't contingent on your goodness, but on your union with Jesus, and he's never going to abandon his son, so you're good. The gospel tells us that yes, sin is sinful, but God's grace is sufficient to deal with that sin through Christ. That Jesus' blood really was enough to pay the full debt of everything you've done, are doing, or will do. His blood is sufficient. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel tells you that there is meaning in your suffering. 
that there's purpose. As senseless as it seems, the Lord will not waste it. But in some mysterious way, as it's folded into the suffering of Christ, it finds significance and it bears fruit for for the gospel. There is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. Attributed to Corey Ten Boom's sister. And as we identify with our Savior in his suffering, our eyes are then directed to the resurrection, which brings life out of the suffering. It brings light out of that darkness. The fact that death does not win. Death doesn't win. Sin and darkness and sadness do not win. Life and hope and joy and peace and the unending presence of God, that for which our souls thirst for, that unending presence of God, that's what wins through Jesus Christ. That's the truth of the gospel. And that's the truth, the light and the truth that we need to Remind ourselves daily of whether we're dealing with depression or not. To remind ourselves daily of it, which is exactly what this, we see the psalmist doing. Especially in the refrain again. As each new wave of, of sorrow and darkness hits him, he responds to it by preaching to himself, interestingly. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And when he addresses his soul, he's quite literally talking to himself. O my soul, O myself. He's interrogating himself. Why are you you downcast? Why are you in turmoil within me? So he's acknowledging the issue, but he's also challenging it at the same time. And then he points himself toward hope. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He knows that's true, even though he doesn't feel it. And so he preaches to himself that truth and that hope. According to Paul Tripp, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. You are an unending conversation with yourself. You are talking to yourself all of the time, interpreting, organizing, and analyzing what's going on inside you and around you. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones asks, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Think about that difference. When we listen to ourselves, it's that laundry list of lies that we hear on repeat, playing over and over and over again. We need to talk to ourselves. We need to preach to ourselves and to one another the truth of the gospel, the truth and light that challenges the darkness. So Jared Wilson encourages us, Tell yourself that you are loved by God. That Christ has died in your stead. That the Spirit lives in you, consecrating you to God and guaranteeing your salvation. 
inform yourself that Jesus is your defense attorney, that he pleads his blood in response to every charge brought against you. Tell your depression that its days are numbered. And even if it should, God forbid, last till your dying breath, it will thus be vanquished for all eternity while you escape to everlasting joy. You will outlast your depression because Christ in you, the hope of glory, will outlast it. That is the truth of the gospel. Hope in God, for I will again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Depression is big, but Christ is bigger. Sadness can run deep, but Christ is deeper still. When your soul is downcast and in turmoil, be honest and take hope in the gospel. Now, I want to remind us one more time, that doesn't mean that if you just trust Jesus more, all of this will go away. Jesus is the answer. But sometimes our brains have a hard time believing that he's the answer. Even when we tell ourselves over and over. Sometimes they need a little coaching. Someone to come alongside us. To help us think through what we're thinking and what we're telling ourselves and what we're believing. Sometimes they may need medication to help clear them up. Meds will not give you hope. They might make you feel less miserable. Says Ed Welch. And there's nothing wrong with that. As Tim Keller says, while we can't fall into the reductionism of believing that all problems are chemically based and require medication, we also can't fall into the reductionism of believing all problems are simply a matter of lacking spiritual disciplines. Schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and a host of other psychological problems are rooted in physiological problems that call for medical treatment, not simple talk therapy. David Murray adds that if there's one thing we can all do, it's to avoid making our own experience the rule for others. Just because medication worked for you doesn't mean it will work for everyone else. Just because biblical counseling alone worked for you doesn't mean it's the answer for everyone else. Just because you've never been depressed doesn't mean depression doesn't exist. Cases are so different and causes are so complex that we need to exercise charity, sympathy, and patience in all of our dealings with each other. So we need to face it with honesty, whether it's our own depression or our, our spouses, our child, our colleagues, our parents. We need to create space in the church to deal with that. And again, that's something, Lord willing, we're going to, to grow in being able to do, coming out of the, the work, the foundation that Joe and Pat have laid in their class, um, we're looking at ways of how can we create space to be honest about some of those kinds of trials. One of the things we're exploring right now is something like a Celebrate Recovery group. Um, but we need to create that space so that we can apply the truth of the gospel to it. That's the goal. That's where we're going. 
the fact that we have a Savior who knows what it feels like to suffer. No other world religion can claim that. We have a Savior who knows what it's like to step into the human experience and to feel the pain and weight of life in a fallen world more than any of us have ever felt it. He knows what it's like to suffer. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He pled in the garden, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. He knows what deep, dark sadness feels like. We have a Savior who took on himself the abandonment and isolation that we might feel and was in fact literally abandoned by the Father in order to bear our sins so that we would never be left or forsaken by God. And as he cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only does he give voice to the cry in so many of our lives, he literally felt it and dealt with it and took it so that you don't have to. And we have a Savior who did not stay in the darkness of the tomb, but through death brought life, who is making all things new, and who in the end will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That is hope. And that is a hope that's bigger than any darkness or sadness that this world can offer. Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him. My salvation and my God. Gracious God, I thank you that by your spirit, you know the condition of every heart in this room. You know the hearts that are weeping right now, longing for deliverance from this darkness. You know the hearts that are confused, scratching their head, feeling a bit awkward for having to think about a subject like this. Lord, would you give us compassion and understanding, would you give us the freedom to be honest, and would you fill our hearts with hope? Thank you that we know how the story ends. Would your spirit help us to believe it wherever we're at in that story? And would you give us the love and compassion and grace and freedom to be able to share our stories with each other as we walk? We need you, God. We so desperately need you. And you are so beautifully and wonderfully here. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your spirit. May we walk in joy and hope with you. In Jesus' name.